When I was first learning to drive, it was an incredibly intimidating experience. I remember going on my driver's test and thinking for sure I'm gonna fail and somehow I made it through. I remember going to college and sitting in some of my first year classes and thinking, what in the world am I doing here? I'm gonna fail everything. <laughs> but as time goes by, driving becomes second nature, studying becomes second nature. That which can be kind of intimidating at first becomes normal. And I just want to acknowledge as we're doing this sermon series on Christian theology that for some of you, you may feel like I just threw you into the deep end. But over time, as we add to our knowledge little by little, this will become like second nature to you. These concepts that at first seem maybe difficult to wrap your mind around will make sense and they will bless you. So when we teach truth, truth is always meant to transform. Truth is always meant to transform. We wanna think more clearly about the word of God, but we also wanna be transformed by it. So we're doing this sermon series called Heretics in the Battle for Orthodoxy. A heretic is someone who has denied some cardinal truths, some what we call orthodox doctrines. And we wanna bring ourselves back to the word of God. We acknowledge that we have lots of new people in our church. We come from different backgrounds. We're all wanting to learn and grow. We wanna be able to do battle with the forces of darkness during the week. We wanna be able to push away satanic attack. And in order for us to do that, we have to grow here. If we grow here in our thinking, it'll affect this and it'll affect this. The way we think is the way we go in life. The way we think is the way we feel in life. The way we think is the way we act in life. So learning to think clearly about God's word is always a blessing. So the first sermon that I preached in this series dealt with who God is. Last week, we discussed the person of Jesus Christ. And now we need two sermons just to cover off the work of Jesus Christ. So in total, we're going to do three sermons in this category of theology that we know as Christology. The biblical doctrines about Christ is called Christology. And the way I want to address this is today I want to look at the past work of Christ. And in coming weeks, we'll look at the present and future work of Jesus Christ. And I would suggest that probably out of all of the doctrines that we're going to cover in this series, this is probably the most familiar to the most number of people in the room because we do talk a lot about Jesus. When we do communion, when we baptize people, we talk about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so hopefully much of this will be familiar to you. I wanna begin by acknowledging what past generations thought about Jesus Christ and his work. So back in the second century, and then again in the fourth century, when Christians got together and they were wrestling with some of the challenges of their day, they wrote statements, we call them creeds. They're kind of like doctrinal statements that churches have on their websites to define their view of God, their view of Jesus, their view of the Holy Spirit, their view of the church and so forth. And one of those statements is called the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed says this about the work of Jesus Christ. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. So you can see in that statement, there's a reference to the past work of Christ, 
his present work seated beside the eternal father and his future work. Today, we're just gonna deal with the first part. In the Nicene Creed written in the fourth century in response to the heresy of Arianism, Christians wrote this statement. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So very similar to what we see in the Apostles' Creed. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come back in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. So again, the past work, the present work and the future work of Jesus is mentioned in that creedal statement. In other words, the work of Christ spans all time. Of course, we know Christ was at work before time as the second person of the eternal triune Godhead in perfect fellowship with Father and Holy Spirit. But in time, Christ was involved in the creation of the world And then in time, Christ was incarnated and the one we know as Jesus Christ lived among us, preached salvation, was put to death under Pontius Pilate, crucified, buried, resurrected. But his work didn't end there. He goes on to the Father representing us and promising that he will one day return and judge the living and the dead. So the work of Christ spans all of time. Let's talk about his past work. And there's much to be discussed here. So get your Bibles ready because we're gonna look at many different passages as we delve into this topic. So the past work of Christ revolves around two things fundamentally, his sacrifice for us and his victory over sin and the devil. So we acknowledge before we get to Christ incarnate that Christ was involved in the creation of the world. So prior to Bethlehem, prior to his earthly ministry, prior to the cross, prior to his resurrection, Christ, the one we know as Christ, the eternal logos, as he's called in John 1, was involved in the creation of the world. In Colossians chapter 1, It's very definitive. For by him, all things were created. So we can say in general, God created the world. But if you want to get technical and you're like, okay, we have God creating the world and God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who is the agent within the triune Godhead that actually creates? In in Colossians, we're told it's the eternal son. The one we know is Jesus. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. That, the stuff that you can see with your eyes and the stuff that you can't see. Angelic beings, for example. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So we have a reference here to the, the kingship of Christ. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. So we have a few theological points that we can draw from this text about Jesus. The first being that he is the comprehensive creator of the universe. But in addition to that, he also sustains all created reality. He holds it together. So meditate upon that for a moment. 
Your existence is not only a result of Christ's creative work, but your ability to be, to survive, is a result of the work of Christ holding you together, sustaining you. The fact that you don't fall apart into a million molecules. The fact that there is gravity that holds things down. The fact that there are seasons. The fact that there is food that comes up that we can eat. We're dependent beings more than we probably acknowledge in any given day. And we are being sustained. Our very lives are being sustained by God. There is a false view of God called deism, which teaches that God sort of started the world, but he's an impersonal God and he sort of took off. They call him the cosmic clock maker or clock winder. In the old days, you'd have to, you'd have to wind your, your clock for a period of time or it would just sort of run out of steam and stop ticking. And that was the view of God, that he, he came, he made, and you know, he's like the landlord that shows up once a month. He's, he's not involved, he's not sustaining, but that's, that's deism, that's not theism. Theism teaches that God is involved in creation. And in Christian theism, God through Christ not only creates, but he is the sustainer of all created reality, including you, which is a pretty cool thought to think about. And then as we go through the Bible, we, dis we discover that Christ condescends. Now, if I were to say to you, I, I, I want to be, you're, you're being condescending. Or if you were to say, Aaron, you're being condescending. That's not a positive word. It's a negative word. It's like, I'm patronizing you. I'm speaking down to you. I'm trying to put on an air of superiority around you. So normally when we speak of people being condescending, it's negative. But when we speak of Christ condescending, it's positive. A superior being, the eternal God came down to live among us. And I wanna spend the, the remainder of our time now talking about the implications of Christ's condescension. And it starts with his incarnation. To be incarnate means to be enfleshed. So Christ was incarnated. We read about this in many passages, but I want to draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. A lot of stuff in here that we can consider. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll actually begin with verse 17, says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. What does that mean? It means Christ was fully human. You're fully human, I'm fully human, but we're not fully God. Jesus is fully God who didn't give up deity to take on humanity, but he added humanity to his deity. So he's fully, he's fully man. This is important because throughout history, many people have attacked the full humanity of Christ. They've thought, well, he wasn't, he wasn't, really, he wasn't really human. He just sort of appeared like it. He wasn't actually like us. He was sort of some hybrid human God creature. No, Christ is not only fully God, but he is fully man. The text is very explicit. To be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. This requires a little bit of Old Testament knowledge. Under the Old Covenant, 
there were priests that would represent you in the Levitical system, the tribe of Levites, who would take your offerings and offer them up in the tabernacle or later one of the temples. They were, they were representatives. They were like go-betweens. They were like mediators between you and God. But there was one that would serve as the high priest, the top dog. And he would go into the Holy of Holies once a year and he would offer a sacrifice on behalf of all the people. And this went on for centuries. But Jesus is the faithful high priest in the service of God. And here's a big word. Again, one of those words you probably didn't use in our conversation this week. To make propitiation. What does that mean? To propitiate means to divert God's wrath through an atonement. So when we say we believe in the propitiatory work, the propitiation of Christ, that Christ propitiated our sin, that's a biblical word. So if it's a biblical word, you should know it. And it means to divert God's wrath and the means by which God's eternal wrath towards sin is diverted is through the atoning, covering, sacrificial, meritorious, faithful work of our true high priest, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. So he makes propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So it affirms the full humanity of Christ and it affirms that because Jesus is fully man, he knows what it's like to be you. Now, the difference between Christ and us is that through Adam, we're now subject to sin. We have a fallen nature. So we are tempted not only by the devil and demons and the world around us, but we also have evil desires within us. Christ didn't have those evil desires because he was born of a virgin. He did not have a sin nature. So he wasn't tempted from within as we often are, but he was tempted from without as we often are, both demonically and because of other humans that are around us that are tempting us, that are trying to lead us astray. And nevertheless, Jesus can relate to our temptation. So he is our high priest representing us to the father because of his propitiatory work. He can stand by the father and say, I am prepared to represent Aaron Rock to you. It's like, well, I, I can't let Aaron Rock into heaven because Aaron Rock is sinful. Yes, but my life has been offered in Aaron Rock's place. I've propitiated his sin. I've atoned for his sin. So he requests to the father that the father would acknowledge his perfection on my behalf because my, I don't have perfection. So this is the, the work of Christ representing us. And you can take the word Aaron Rock and substitute your name there if you're a believer. He's representing us. He's propitiated our sin. In the incarnation, there's also a relational dynamic. We're all interested in relationships. And the, neat, the wonderful thing about our Savior Jesus Christ is that in his incarnation, we now have the offer of being in relationship with God. A relationship that was severed in the fall, but can be reunited in Christ. So folks, like I've said before, we are rebels by nature. We run from God. We don't seek after God. Romans 3 teaches that explicitly. You ever go to a church that says they're seeker sensitive? Bad language, there's no such thing. Oh, we are called to seek, but we don't. So we're sort of doubly damned because God calls us to seek. But the fact that Romans 3 tells us that no one seeks 
means we need grace and we need mercy, which God provides in full measure. And it's because of Christ's work on our behalf coming into this world that just like John had a relationship with Christ and Peter had a relationship with Christ, we can have a relationship with Christ. He's an up close and personal God. In Hebrews chapter four, two verse, two passages, uh, two chapters later, it says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Let's believe it. Let's be galvanized by it. Let's be encouraged by it. This is real stuff. For we do not have a high priest that is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus isn't like one of those clergymen that's sort of going through the motions, but doesn't really care about you. He's just a a paid mouthpiece. Doesn't really care about you. No, he is a God who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Never failed, not once. He did not succumb to any temptation. Imagine that. I succumb to temptation all the time. Jesus did not succumb to any temptation. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I can tell you, if you were the high priest under the old covenant, going into the the holy place once a year was an intimidating experience. Did you know that they would tie a rope to their ankle and trail it out into the courtyard? Because if that high priest went in there probably shaking like this, it's like, I hope I, for, I, hope I remember to, for, to repent of all my sins, but maybe I forgot one. He could go in there and God could strike him dead because the holiness of God did not tolerate sin. So if he had not made proper atonement, if he had not properly uh, made proper restitution, if he had not for, uh, asked for forgiveness, God could snuff his life out like that. How would you like to have that job? Hey, go into the back room and if you're not perfect, you're gonna die. I'll tie a rope to your ankle just in case you forgot to confess. We'll pull you out. So there's no way any high priest ever went into the holy place with confidence. Certainly not any absolute confidence. But because we are not trusting in our merits, we enter into the holy place believing and trusting in the perfection of Christ, we can draw near to God with full and absolute confidence that it's not us who are being presented to the Father, but it's the merits of Christ that are being presented to the Father. That's why we know that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And folks, our times of need are plentiful. We're, in, we're very needy people. Every once in a while in a relationship, you're like, oh, that person's exhausting. They're so needy. I wonder what God thinks about us. We're all very needy. Maybe by comparison, we're not as needy as the person next to us. Just lean over and say, hey, you're more needy than me. But we're all needy of God's grace and mercy and restitution and forgiveness. But we have a savior that is able to make that connection. Through Christ's incarnation, through his enfleshing, we also encounter what we call in Christian theology, the three offices that Christ bears. So an office is like a role, it's a a position. And I'll give you some scripture passages. You can write these down and look them up later. The first is Christ as prophet. So prophet, priest, specifically high priest, 
and king, specifically king of kings. So Christ is prophet, he is high priest, and he is king of kings. As prophet, what Christ did is he came to reveal to us. What does a prophet do? They tell you about God. Positively, they tell you about God, and they warn you not to mess with God. They warn you when you fail, when you sin. So Christ donned the mantle of a prophet. He revealed God to us by speaking directly to us and showing God to us. You can reference Acts 3.22 or John 1, the whole first dozen verses or so, verses 1 to 14. He is also our high priest, as we've read about in both these passages in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4, meaning that Christ reconciles us to God as the only qualified representative. I'm a pastor, folks, but I have no capacity to represent you to God. Hopefully, I most of the time represent Christ to you, represent the word of God to you well, but I can't represent you to God. I can't mediate on your behalf. I can't, you know, call him up and say, hey, can you forgive such and such as sins? We're all priests. We can all ask as priests for forgiveness of sins, Hebrews teaches us, but Christ is our ultimate high priest. Interestingly, he's the high priest, but he's also the ultimate sacrifice. He's also the the ransom for sin. So under the old covenant, you had sacrifice over here, priesthood over here. You didn't offer a priest as your sacrifice. There was no human sacrifices under the old covenant system. You didn't say, well, let's kill the high priest. Let's let's slaughter him. Let's let his blood run down the altar. He is going to be our sacrifice. No, you had the perfect sacrifice animal being offered as a temporary atonement for sin. And you had the high priest over here engaging in that act. But Christ is both at the same time, the high priest and the lamb of God offering himself as the high priest and being the lamb, the perfect lamb that was offered for us. Mark 10, 45, Hebrews chapters nine and 10. Isaiah 52, 53, many of you know Isaiah 53, that famous passage about the suffering servant who would come to redeem us from our sins. And third, we've encountered in this text a reminder of the kingship of Christ, which we've been talking about a lot for the past couple of years. Christ is king of kings. We acknowledge there are kings and there are queens and there are rulers and there are leaders and God puts them into place. But the one to whom they are ultimately accountable and the one they represent is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is our present king. He has conquered death. He is exalted, coronated in heaven and will fully evidence his reign at the second coming. So this is where we sort of live in this tension. It's like, well, if he's the King of kings, why isn't that evident to everybody? Well, it will be soon. But his kingship is not yet far off. He's king now. He's king of kings and Lord of lords now. We even pray in the Lord's prayer. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to put on display the kingship, the lordship of Christ. But we know that many will reject it. And many will fail to fully see it. But the day will come when the fullness of his kingdom will be made manifest in this world. And of course, in the world to come. 
So we have the incarnation of Jesus Christ and through that, the offer of redemption and the offer of relationship. Fast forward through his ministry and we come to the death of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. Hebrews chapter two speaks much of this. Since therefore, beginning with verse four, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, another reference to his incarnation, his full humanity, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all things and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Well, there's a lot to be said about this passage. It references the incarnation of Christ. It reminds us that he is fully human. It reminds us that he came to conquer death because what is the ultimate consequence of your sin? Death. What kind of death? Physical death and spiritual death. Those are the consequences of sin. That wasn't part of God's original ideal. When Adam and Eve were put in the garden, it wasn't like, okay, you got 70 years and you're gone. Had they not sinned, they'd still be living in the Garden of Eden. But very quickly they sinned, didn't they? And that sin has been passed on to all of us as their offspring. So we have this problem and, and we can't fix it. No one can side skirt death. People try, oh, freeze me. I'll pay to be frozen. And maybe in the future, they'll come up with a cure to my disease. Even at times in, in our spiritual lives, we pray for healing, physical healing, and God heals us. But guess what? You can be healed a thousand times in your life. Eventually you'll die. So at some point, God's gonna say, yeah, no more. Eventually you die. And if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll also die spiritually. So if you're born once, you die twice. You die physically and you die spiritually. But if you're born twice, both from your mother's womb and through the regenerative work of the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God, you only die once. You die physically, but you don't mourn that because on the other side of that, you know there's resurrection hope and to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the beauty of the work of Christ. So Christ comes to destroy the power of death, to put the devil in his place, and then to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is why the non-believer has reason to fear death. But Christians don't fear death. We often joke and say we, we fear the method, but not death itself. We needn't fear death. Folks, the longer you meditate upon the reality of the resurrection, the less afraid of your own death you'll be. And I understand, depending on where you're at in your spiritual journey, that it still might be something you struggle with. It's a weakness. But we also, we want to ultimately get to a point where we've thought so much about the resurrection and we believe in it so strongly that we are not afraid to die. Whether God takes us early or we get extra innings, we are not afraid to die. We do not live in fear of death because this truth, this theology has transformed us. Again, truth is meant to transform you. Not just stuff you tuck away in your head so you can grow and have a big intellect. 
It's meant to transform you. Prior to, prior to salvation, we have fear of death and we're subject to lifelong slavery, meaning we are in bondage to sin. Apart from Christ's regenerating work, we are in bondage to sin. I did a podcast this week, you should listen to it. I list off numerous passages of scripture that talk about the depravity of people. We are, we are worse off than we think apart from Christ. Even the good we do is riddled with evil intentions. And we don't like to acknowledge it because we like to pat ourselves on the back. But even the good we do apart from Christ is riddled with sinful intentions. We are in lifelong slavery to sin. And slaves don't free themselves. They have to be freed by someone else. So we can't free ourselves from it. But he comes to save, not angelic beings. There's no redemption for the angels. I hope you know that. Demons will never be able to say, you know what, I, I, I'm sorry, Lord, for transgressing and you know, I want to be forgiven. I don't want to be a demon anymore. I want to be an angel again. There's no redemption for the angels. Christ did not die for the angels, for fallen angels. But he died for the offspring of Abraham, the spiritual seed. Not only the physical seed that trusts in him, but the spiritual seed of Abraham. So if you are of the faith of Abraham, you can have the assurance of eternal life. So we affirm here an actual incarnation, an actual death, which destroyed Satan's power and delivered human beings from the fear of death. So in the incarnation, what do we have? The offer of relationship. In his death, what do we have? The offer of redemption. So we have relationship and we have the offer of redemption. First Peter fleshes this out. First Peter chapter two, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, referring to the cross made of wood, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. By his sacrifice, by his merit, by his work, we are healed, not by our own. Folks, this is why we denounce false religion because all the other world religions and aberrant forms of Christianity as well teach it. It's by your wounds that you're healed. By showing up at the mosque, the synagogue, by praying five times a day, by getting baptized, by paying alms, by beating yourself, by depriving yourself, by whatever means they might concoct. It's by your wounds that you're healed. But the beauty of the gospel is it's by his wounds that you have been healed. We say then that the work of Christ is sufficient. It's sufficient. Fortunately, it's also efficient, meaning it's also been applied to those of us that believe. It's efficient for your salvation. It's been applied to you. It's efficient for mine, but it is sufficient for the sins of the world. The sufficiency of Christ's merit, it's sufficient People won't like this, but we got to say it. It's also exclusive. He's the way, the truth, and the life. It's not, well, this is kind of neat. And there's also five other people that could do the same thing for you besides Christ. No, it's exclusive. And folks, it's final. Jesus doesn't have to come back to the cross every year, every Easter. He doesn't have to get back on the cross. It's sufficient. It's efficient. It's final. And it's exclusive. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Once. The righteous 
for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It's very clear. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ has solved our sin problem. He's made us alive in the spirit. Ephesians chapter two says, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, but made alive through Christ. So if I were to say, I just saw a dead guy, does that mean I saw a guy that was sort of crawling along with a lot of injuries? No, it means he's dead. You're either alive or you're dead. There's nothing in between. If you're injured, you're still alive. You might not be doing well. You might be on the verge of death, but you're in, injured, to be injured and to be dead is two different things. In Christian theology, we're taught that apart from Christ, we're not injured. We're dead. Dead people don't resuscitate themselves. Death pe- dead people can't like, oh, I'm gonna work really hard to get my arm moving again. Oh, it's like Frankenstein. Dead people are dead. So apart from Christ, you're not injured. You're not just a little off base. You are dead and you can't resuscitate yourself. But Christ regenerates, rebirths. This is why we talk about being born again. He makes us new. He brings us back to life based upon the life of Jesus Christ. There's some language that we have developed in Christian theology to help us to understand the work of Jesus Christ. And some of you may have heard these words before and for others be like, wow, those are, those are new. But the words are the vicarious, penal, substitutionary atonement. Every one of these words is important. We believe and affirm the vicarious, penal, substitutionary atonement of Christ. Vicarious means he did it on our behalf. He vicariously suffered on our behalf. We weren't there. I wasn't at the foot of the cross. I wasn't on the cross. I didn't go into the grave. Christ did that before I was even born. He set his sights on me before I was even born, which is, which is an incredibly uplifting thought. It affects my worship. So he suffers on our behalf. He, he suffered for us. Penal. What's a penal colony? What does it mean to be penalized? means to be punished. So Christ was punished for our sins. Substitutionary. He, just like the offerings under the old covenant, you'd offer the red heifer, you'd offer the unblemished lamb, you'd offer the two doves, you'd offer choice grains on your behalf so that they would die, they would be burned up so that you would be forgiven. So Christ was put to death as our substitute. And he's our atonement. To atone is effectively to cover, to cover us. So we affirm the vicarious, penal, substitutionary atonement of Christ. He was punished on our behalf as our substitute for our sin. Now, in the current environment we find ourselves in, and this has happened time and time again throughout history, There are a lot of Christians who are denying this, who are attacking this, who are coming up with alternative atonement theories. And their fundamental problem with vicarious penal substitutionary atonement is like, well, that makes God sound like he's a meanie. 
That makes God sound like, are you serious? God, the God of love would send his son to be put to death? That sounds like he's a child abuser. And the fundamental problem they have with vicarious penal substitutionary atonement is what we call retributive justice. They don't like it. What's retributive justice? Retributive justice is when, is, is effectively punishing justice. So you notice even a shift in our culture. In our culture, we used to have a justice system that would punish you for your crimes. It shifted. Now we have Corrections Canada. What they want to do is they want to redeem you. They want to redeem you from the challenges you've experienced that push you into a life of crime. Those that would deny penal substitutionary atonement, they don't like the the concept of retributive justice, that God's justice is punishing, that God actually has to punish sin, that that the Lord Jesus Christ had to be punished for our transgressions. They say, no, no, no. It's better to think of the atonement as a redeeming atonement. So God's justice is never retributive, it's just redeeming. God is not about punishing evil, he's about redeeming the lost. He doesn't punish it, he just redeems. He's obviously concerned about your sin, but he's never gonna punish you for your sin, he just wants to redeem you from it. He wants to just make you new. So when when Christ died, it was strictly for the purpose of redeeming you. Well, biblically, folks, it's both and. God's justice is retributive and God's justice is also redeeming. How do we know that? Well, in retributive justice, think animal sacrifices. Why were they offering sacrifices if God's judgment's not retributive? Why did Christ or why did God mandate the death penalty in Genesis 9, 6? By man, if you shed the blood of a man, by man shall your blood be shed. This is pre-old covenant, by the way. This is, this is long-term. Why would God mandate the death penalty? If you, if you go and kill someone, the just retributive penalty for that is the taking of your life. Why would he mandate that if God's justice is not retributive? Why would Jesus' blood have needed to be shed if God's justice is not retributive? Why didn't just Jesus just, uh, just do a lot of good deeds? Why do we die if God's justice is not retributive? Why are we subject to death? So God's justice is very much retributive. In this respect, we can affirm the penal part of vicarious penal substitutionary atonement. Christ was penalized for our sin. But we also very much affirm the redeeming justice of God that God in his justice does want to redeem us. When we are being made new, we're told we're freed from slavery. That's a redeeming word. To be freed is to be redeemed. We are adopted as his sons and daughters. We're part of his family. We're born again. We're made new. We become new creations in Christ. So when we think of God's justice, it's biblical to think of God's justice as both retributive and redeeming justice. We hold both of these things to be biblical. Now, there also is a statement in the 
creeds that talk about him descending to the dead. And some would say this means he descended into hell, meaning the, the abode of the devil, the abode of the damned, that he went into hell during his three days in the tomb and he, he was actually in hell sort of suffering a form of damnation on our behalf. And there he was preaching and he was preaching second chance salvation or the opportunity to be saved while, while they were in hell. And this is based upon an interpretation of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. And I'll just read a part of this for you. It says, in which he went and proclaimed, remember that word, to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So you remember the Noahic flood? While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Well, I believe, and, and I could spend a whole sermon on this passage, but I'll just whet your appetite a little bit. I, I do not believe that Jesus Christ descended into hell with a capital H, but rather the language here means that he did descend into the dead. And his proclaiming work is to be understood in this passage as part of his post-resurrection, so after he was res resurrected, pre-ascension before he went to the father ministry. So if you remember, after he was resurrected and prior to going to the, to the eternal father in his ascension, Christ continued to do ministry among us. So verse 18, if you step back in 1 Peter chapter three, sets the context, which I think makes this interpretation valid. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So after being made alive in the spirit, but being, but being made alive in the spirit, then we encounter verses 19 and 20, which talks about his proclamation to the spirits who are in prison. And this makes sense because if Christ was preaching second chance salvation or victory over sin during his three days in the grave, well, the question would be, yeah, but you not yet have conquered death. I mean, you haven't been resurrected yet. The resurrection hasn't happened. So it'd be nonsensical for Christ to preach victory while he was still in the grave prior to his resurrection. So I would not affirm that Christ descended into hell, capital H, but he descended into the abode of the dead and made his, his proclamation after his resurrection. Secondly, the spirits in prison, there's some ambiguity as to what they are, who they are. But he does tie this into this interesting account that many people ponder in Genesis chapter six, where it talks about the Ben Elohim, the sons of man, uh, the sons of God going into the daughters of men and procreating with them. And there's different views where these like fallen angels that came down and somehow took on corporeal form were incarnate and bred with, human females and created some sort of a hybrid offspring. Were these the, are the Ben Elohim supposed to be referring to the, the, the sons of the godly Seth, the line of the godly Seth and the, the sons of the daughters of men are perhaps the, the, um, the, the, the offspring of Cain. So it was the idea there that a family that was godly was now having children with a family that was ungodly and it created a polluted environment, which ultimately led to the Noahic flood. So there's, there's differences of opinion on, 
uh, what that is all about. But either way, Peter does draw a parallel in this text by referring to that between the judgment of God that existed in the time of Noah. He also refers the judgment of God that existed in the time of Lot. What was that all about? Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? How did it end for Sodom and Gomorrah? Not well. So he references judgment at the Noahic flood, judgment at Sodom and Gomorrah, and the offer of salvation portrayed through water baptism. Water baptism is sort of portrayed in a certain visual way between the Noahic flood, the water that the ark rescued them from, baptism, which doesn't save, but demonstrates the rescue that we've experienced because of Christ, all of which is made possible through the work of Jesus Christ. Third, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, when it talks about proclamation, it uses a particular Greek word, the word caruso. Now the word caruso means to proclaim or to announce. But there's another word that's similar, but has a little different meaning to it. And it's the word uangelizo, from which we get the word evangelism. And this means to proclaim good news. So if you're evangelizing, you're proclaiming good news. If you're carusoing, you might be announcing good news. You might be announcing bad news. You might be announcing something that's sort of neutral. So it would be unlikely Again, some would say when Christ went into hell, when, it, when he went into the grave, that means he went into hell. And based upon 1 Peter chapter three, he was actually in hell saying to everybody, okay, I know you're here, but I just died in the cross. If you want a second chance, you can still repent. So this is this false theology of second chance salvation. And they use this passage to, to prove that point, but the passage doesn't speak about the proclamation of good news. This is, even if Jesus was there, he was not preaching a message of salvation to the spirits in prison, but a message of condemnation through Christ's victory. The same kind of condemnation that the people who lived at the time of Noah experienced, the same kind of condemnation that God pronounced upon the Ben Elohim and the sons of man in Genesis chapter six, the same kind of condemnation that God preached against Sodom and Gomorrah. These, this wasn't a good, these weren't good sermons. These weren't joyful sermons. They were messages of condemnation. So again, this is not a message of salvation to the spirits or people in prison. While the content of Christ Caruso, his proclamation is not explicitly given, there's no reason to conclude, as some have, that after death, Christ comes to us and gives us yet a second chance to repent. But rather, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. So if you're going to repent, you have to do it in this life prior to heaven or prior to hell. Because our chances for salvation end when death comes a knocking. And finally, folks, we have the resurrection, which we'll speak briefly about. In Romans chapter 4, it says, He was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. He was delivered up for our tra tra trespasses, that's another word for sin, and raised for our justification. At funerals, we often preach from 1 Corinthians 15 because it's a famous resurrection passage. Well, there's no resurrection for us if there was no resurrection for Christ. So how important is the resurrection on a scale of one to 10? It's like an 11. It's critical. You can't deny the resurrection of Christ and be a Christian, a true Christian. 
But throughout time, because even the godless know how important the resurrection is, there's been all sorts of crazy theories that have been concocted to try to disprove the resurrection. Even from the first century onward, some have said, well, the tomb, the tomb of Jesus was actually hidden. It, they, they pretended to put him in Joseph's tomb, but he was, he was actually put elsewhere. So they were dealing with the wrong body. He wasn't actually resurrected. He's still in some unknown tomb. Others taught early on that the authorities must have come and stole the body of Jesus on the first night of his entombment so that his disciples wouldn't find it. Others have taught that the disciples went to the wrong tomb. You know, when you're, you're upset, you're, you're bereaved, you're confused, they just went to the wrong tomb. You ever been to a cemetery and you're looking around, you put flowers at the wrong tomb? It was just kind of like that. Others ridiculously have suggested that it's called the swoon theory that Jesus wasn't really dead. You know, he, was, he had a spear in his side and all of his blood was literally spilt. He was wrapped in probably 100, 120 pounds of cloth and spices. But in the tomb, he's like, oh, oh that was rough. <laughs> Just sort of woke up. Somehow this man that had been in the, wrapped up for a couple days pushed off all of his entombment clothes and pushed away the stone and came out. This is a theory that some people actually believe to try to disprove the resurrection. But the fact of the matter is, when we look at the word of God, which is God's special revelation to us, which is authoritative, Jesus was resurrected from an actual grave after having experienced a real human death in keeping with prophecy by the power of God. He was incarnated by the Holy Spirit of God and he was resurrected by the power of God. So the past work of Christ involves his creative work, his condescension, his incarnation, his death through which we have the opportunity to be atoned and his resurrection. And that means that you and I have the offer of redemption and the offer of righteousness available to us even now. Have you made yourself have you availed yourself of that? Have you repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ? And here's a key word, alone. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone? He is the sin bearer and he alone is qualified to bear your sins in his own body on the tree. And he's prepared to do that. He's prepared to offer his suffering as a propitiatory sacrifice for you. And he's prepared not only to redeem you from your sins, but also offer his righteousness to you. So his resume becomes yours. And when you stand before the father, if God were to say, hey, why should I let you into heaven? What have you done? No one could say, well, you know, I went to church a lot. Read my Bible several times. I was charitable. No, the, the correct answer is because of the merits of Christ. We offer nothing to appease God or please God, but the righteousness of Christ is applied to us through simple faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So if you haven't done so already, put your faith in him. And if you have, live large, live with peace, live with joy, and allow his righteousness to work its way out in your life. 